Hi, this is John Hall. And this is Kathy Emmons. And we're from 101.5 Ward FM. And you've just fallen into the Theology Theology Pit. Welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology Out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with The Bottomless Pit, because you know what we say here, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. I'm, of course, your friendly neighborhood host and theologian, Samson Kovach, and of course, I'm coming to you from The Theology Pit, which is located on the lowest level of my house, but that does not stop the banging and clanging and screaming of the children uh, from bleeding through. So, of course, I do apologize. I mean, I know... I've gotten uh, comments from a lot of people that they think it's funny they can hear my kids in the background just you know, being kids and, and screaming and everything and, and, and playing. I have a friend who um, he uh, lives down the hill from a daycare and he said to me that uh, on a warm summer afternoon you can't tell if there are children playing outside or if they are being brutally murdered because it sounds about the same they are just screaming and just kind of going crazy but hey today in the theology pit i want to kind of talk to give you an update about what's going on with the theology pit what's going to be happening here in the future and um just what it's going to kind of look like in general. I'm doing a couple changes in, you know, what I want to discuss, what I want to talk about in the way that I'm, I'm doing the pit here. Um, I'm going to be spending a little bit more time on the pit. I haven't, uh, really had a lot of time lately to get to it. Um, from, I, I had to, I had a herniated disc, had to have back surgery and really I could only lay in one position for months and I really couldn't do much of anything. So, sitting upright in a chair at a microphone kind of leaning forward um you know would have been excruciating and putting a lot of uh, pressure on my lower back um but i'm able to do it now you know well enough that i think i should be able to get through you know episodes of the theology pit that we're doing uh, and, and let you know what's going on. I'm also going to try and cut the theology pit down in uh, time just because, you know, the, the material that we cover, it, it it's pretty dense. If you haven't heard it before, you know, it's something that you want to think about, something you want to concentrate on. And, um, you know, quite frankly, there's a lot of preparation that goes into a big like hour long or hour and 15 minute. I think I kept them at like an hour long, though. Um, you know, theology pit. And so instead of me just kind of rambling on and on and on, like, you know, I always do, I'm just going to, you know, take it a little bit slower and in uh, smaller chunks and uh, we'll kind of see where it goes. So hang on for the new theology pit. All right, get this coffee slurping going there to wet the old whistle. So, um, I, I, like I said, I herniated a disc and, um, I had to have back surgery on it and I was out and really the only thing that I could do, um, was sit or lay down, but mostly sit, even laying down was, was hurting. And in a certain position, uh, I couldn't play music. Um, I couldn't really do anything. I could barely walk. The only thing that I could do was listen to podcasts, listen to music, uh, and have my laptop with me. So I decided that, um, you know, I, I casually started 
writing a book. I said, well, why don't I finish it? And I'm very close to being finished. I have everything written out um, except for uh, the preface, and I might be doing a conclusion chapter. I'm not sure. I'm still debating on that. But other than that, all 20 chapters uh, of the book are complete. And the theology pits that I want to do, I want to kind of talk about some of these chapters and, you know, the content that's in them. Now, a lot of it is largely based on the series that I did on salvation, most notably on the doctrine of justification. And I, I called it salvation because, you know, it's a lot of times when people think of the doctrine of justification, it's, it's an all-encompassing salvation. And I was you wanted to show the distinction. So if I just called it justification, I think it may have been a little bit confusing. Now, the book that I wrote is going to be titled so far, um, just, just as if I'd, uh, because a lot of people say, well, that's what justification is. It's just as if I'd never sinned. It's just as if I'd never, you know, whatever. And while, you know, that's, that's kind of horrible to do that type of like, you know, armchair etymology of a word. Um, it's I, I, a lot of people think that way and a lot of people say that. So I thought that that'd be a good you know title for the book. But the subtitle of it is a history of the application of the atonement and looking through what does it mean that Christ died for us and the doctrine of justification most basically that most people understand is that we are justified by our faith in Christ. And my book is kind of pushing back against that and saying, hang on, have you, have you really thought about what that means uh, when the reformers say that? And of course, by me doing that, I mean, people, boy, I mean, they have the, the ostrich syndrome, head goes in the sand, fingers in the ears. They do not want to hear what I have to say because that doctrine is as sacred to them as the word of God. And you do not touch it. It is a Protestant dogma in a lot of ways. It's the way that people judge whether or not you are Christian. It's the way that people um, judge whether or not they should fellowship with you is based on a doctrine and even using that doctrine as a litmus test to see whether or not you're saved. If you disagree with this articulation, then you are not saved. But they fail to recognize the irony of that statement. I mean, when they say, you know, if you don't believe a certain doctrine, then you are not justified. Well, by saying that, what you're saying is that if you don't believe a certain doctrine, which is actually a doctrine that says you're not justified by doctrines, then you are not justified. So I'll say that again, because maybe sitting there going, wait, what? Okay. They're saying that only you can only be justified by faith alone. Okay. Like that's it. It's by your faith on its own that you can be justified. Okay. And if you say, I don't agree with that doctrine or the wording of that doctrine or the implication of that doctrine, they would say, well, if you disagree with this doctrine, then you cannot be justified because the only way you're justified is by adhering to this doctrine, which says you can only be justified by your faith in Christ alone, not in any doctrine. It's, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where the, the irony of it is just, I, I, I don't understand how it's gone this long without people really challenging it. And honestly, I think this is one of the big reasons why during the Reformation and, and the Council of Trent, um, it was 
rejected, you know, by the Council of Trent, this doctrine of, of faith alone. And I think for many good reasons, when you think about it on, you know, face value, number one, if it's your faith, for example, that justifies you, and we define faith. I mean, the, the the Puritans did, the Reformers did, the Protestants did, the Lutherans did. They defined faith as notitia, ascensus, and fiducia, knowledge, agreement, and trust. Okay, and people say that that is what consists of faith. All right. Now, when you ask, okay, if I'm justified by my faith, do I have to have perfect faith, perfecting faith? Or perfect faith. Do I have to? Have, which would mean I have to have perfect knowledge, perfect agreement, and perfect trust, because that is what God requires. God is a God of perfection. He requires that. That's what's necessary. If anything taints it at all, then it's it's no good. It can't work. It can't be this type of of faith that we're saying that it is. Also. This has to be a faith that is perfect eternally. Okay. Adam was not created sinful. Adam was created with this perfect faith. Okay. He had this perfect eternal faith because from his creation, his faith was, you know, 100% perfect. All right. Once the fall happened, that faith then got broken down from original sin. It was tainted. Something happened to it. Some people say that, um, you know, we went completely dead when it came to the uh, idea of faith and, and of belief. Some people said, well, we were just sick, you know, from it. But, um, you know, when you read in uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, it it really doesn't matter what, what you believe about this, whether, you know, we still have the ability or we don't have the ability to believe because Paul makes it very clear that nobody searches for God. Nobody ever has. Nobody does. It's not something that people do. And really, it's not so much Paul writing that. He's actually quoting Psalms. So, in the Old Testament, they knew that this faith had to be perfect. Now, a lot of times, we have this idea that faith is just this passive, cognitive uh, thing that we apprehend. And, and that's just all the more it is. You know, faith for faith's sake, just blind belief. When that doesn't seem to be the case, nowhere in the Old Testament do we ever see this concept of faith as anything less than active. It's always something that's active and working. It's something that's done, okay? If you do something that is meriting a reaction, that's meriting a response, okay? This is what the the Jewish culture, you know, understood. What's interesting is that... um, Millard Erickson, in his uh, Christian theology that he put out in uh, 1984, uh, he touches on this. And I haven't found a lot of other um, people that uh, like systematic theologies that really touch on this aspect of faith. Like they will talk about it being, you know, active, of course, especially in the life of a believer. And in sanctification, it is to be active. Um, but in justification, a lot of times it's articulated as, well, we have this passive faith that God has given us. And because we have this passive faith, that is the channel in which we are able to uh, receive justification in order for us to believe and exercise this uh, faith uh, that is now active in us. But 
uh, Miller Erickson went by went back and said that. Um, uh, as I'm going to quote him here, um, as repentance is the negative aspect of conversion, turning from one's sin, so faith is the positive aspect. Laying hold of the prim- the promises of the work of Christ, faith is at the very heart of the gospel, for it's the vehicle by which we are enabled to receive the grace of God. Once again, it is important to look first at the biblical terminology. And then he goes uh, through to explain um, that in Old Testament Hebrew, there is no noun for the word faith. Okay? And the only place that you may be able to find it is in Habakkuk 2.4, but it's usually rendered faithfulness. And it's and Habakkuk 2.4 is interesting because it's what um, uh, Paul wrote. Quotes in one of his um, in one of his letters about us being um, you know, justified by faith, and it's the um, it's it's the faith of God. It's God's faithfulness. Um, let me try and find it here. Okay, so in Galatians uh, three eleven, uh, Paul says. Um, now it is clear no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. Now he's quoting Habakkuk there. And if you go back to Habakkuk 2.4, it says, look, the one who desires are the one who desires are not upright will faint from exhaustion, but the person of integrity will live because of his faithfulness. Okay, and the emphasis is on the faithfulness that is outside of him. That's what Paul is getting at in Galatians uh, 3.11 there, because he spent a lot of time in Galatians 1 and 2 talking about how it's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So when we're looking at his faithfulness, Habakkuk is looking forward to the Messiah and saying that it's his faithfulness, and that's how we're to understand that according to what Paul is saying in Galatians here. So the fact that there really is no concept of faith being a noun, okay? Uh, There is no understanding that intellectual belief, okay, as much as it, you know, is um, trusting or committing to oneself, is more the way that faith is used, okay? Not just this, um, oh, you know... um, I guess noun way is the best way to say it, that, that it's a noun, that it's just, that it's just a thing. Um, it's always used a lot of times in the verb sense. Okay, now, in the third chapter of the book that I wrote, you know, it's, it's entitled, Your Verb Faith Cannot Justify You, But It Can Change the World. And that's all in the first 300 years of church history and how this active living faith that we have in Jesus Christ as believers of that time was actually able to take down the Roman Empire by changing the hearts and minds of people away from paganism and to Christianity. And it eventually, um, you know, became the uh, well legal in um, I think the Edict of Milan in uh, three thirteen when it was signed, um, which allowed Christianity to be legal then. And then uh, you had your you know councils and that sort of thing. And it wasn't until the early fifth century that Christianity was made the official religion of um, the church of, of yeah for religion of the church. Yeah, that sounds good. No, uh, the religion of the state. Um, so once that happened, like if you would have told somebody in like 
during the um, like Diocletian persecutions or something, or you know, uh, or if, if you were to went went to them in like you know 303 AD or 306 AD and said, hey, in a hundred years Christianity is going to be the dominant legal religion in Rome, they would have said, you know, what planet are you from? Christianity has never been the dominant. We have been nothing. To to be a Christian means to be persecuted. Okay, it does not mean that you are in power or that you are anything but, you know, suffering with Christ. It would it would just be completely unheard of um, because faith was something that was acted out. Now, this, like I said, this verb faith is how we are understanding faith, and it's how the the Jews at the time in the first century understood faith. It's how the Old Testament understood it. So. It's going to be the way that Paul understands faith. People started getting this idea that faith was, you know, nothing more than, you know, a type of knowledge or cognition, which was influenced from Stoic philosophy. Let's be honest. Stoic philosophy and Gnosticism came a little bit later, but Stoic philosophy was stating that you can become uh, more... I guess, more holy or quote-unquote saved in their uh, view system by becoming the logikos, okay? Taking from the word logos, you know, meaning word, but it, it had a, a connotation of like a divine like emanation or, or spiritual word. And it was through wisdom that you gained this and you could become a wise man by doing that. And that was like the height of salvation and stoicism, but it's all cognitive. It's not it's not a, a belief system that is that is active because when you look at the way the Stoics behave, they were extremely cynical and extremely uh, cruel people. Um, so with this, and, and you can and you can also see this because James like totally mocks people at that time for saying that you can have faith without works. They're like, what do you mean? There's no such thing as a faith without works. That's just kind of ridiculous, you know. So faith is constantly active. So for us to say that we are justified by our faith in Christ alone, we then have to say that this faith is an active working faith, not a passive faith. And if it's by an active working faith, how did we get that active working faith? Now, some would say, well, God gives us that faith, and then we respond to doing that. Okay, if he does, then that is called sanative grace. That is God pouring something into you that then makes you savable. Okay, once that's poured into you and you have that power, okay, you can then merit God's favor. And the definition of merit is that you are behaving in a way that makes God in a way or coerces God to respond to you in a certain way. Okay, I guess that that would be the most general definition of what merit is. Anything you do that, you know, causes God to respond favorably to you. So, this is what, you know, the church believed for a long time, the Roman Catholic Church still does and, and still teaches. And I would say many Protestant churches unknowingly uh, do, but the Roman Catholic Church is extremely explicit in it. And they would say that, no, through sanative grace, um, through uh, it's called gratia infusa, through grace infused within you, that is what changes you. And then, you know, that expression of it, that so we can get these merits, Okay, in order to do this, the Christ has limitless amounts of merits, and so does Mary and the saints and everybody else. The church is distributing these merits within you. 
that is coming in you and changing you. And then you have this outward response so that you are being saved because through what you are doing, you are causing God, you, your works, the action is on you, causing God to then look favorably upon you. Now, according to the book of Romans, it says that um, God declares the ungodly to be just or the ungodly to be righteous. He doesn't say, you know, doctrine of justification. He doesn't say justified. He uses um, you know, two different ideas to explain um, the the righteousness that you receive. And one of them is being made righteous with God, you know, your justification, that you are made right with God. And the other one is the forgiveness of sins. And so these two things go together. In, in, to form justification. And this is by declaration. So God declares you to be righteous. Now, he doesn't declare the godly to be righteous. Romans specifically says he declares the ungodly to be just. Okay? The ungodly. And then he goes on further in um, uh, Romans uh, 17 to say, I, I probably should, you know, uh, pull this up to read it to you exactly. I'm kind of looking through my notes to see if I have it like right in front of me. But because um, I, I, you know, I'm just going to do that because I always tend to uh, kind of botch up my my paraphrasing on uh, on this aspect of it, and I, I really don't want to botch up the paraphrasing uh, of this. So if we go to uh, uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 17. Um, second part of it, uh, after he says about Abraham, that he is our father in the presence of God whom he believed. And then it says, this is what he believed. Okay. Not, you know, that he was justified. Um, he did not believe in something, but he believed on someone. Okay. He believed the God who makes the dead alive and summons the things that do not yet exist as though they already do. So you could see from the beginning of chapter four from, and from three, if you go from chapter three and chapter four, that, you know, he is declaring you the ungodly to be righteous. So you're not godly. And you may say, well, what, what makes, what constitutes the definition of a godly man? Well, when we read back in um, Acts chapter 10 and the story of Cornelius and, you know, he was called a God-fearing man. He um, prayed and, uh, you know, daily made sacrifices, did good works. You know, he was working out his faith. He, um, I think he fed people, um, took care of orphans and widows, like those sort of things. He was called a godly man. And the angel appeared to him and said, you know, um, send for Peter, who's at the Tanner's roof, to give you the gospel. Now, here's somebody that doesn't know Jesus Christ, does not know the gospel, okay? And the angel's not telling him, but he's considered a godly man. Well, how can he be considered godly apart from knowing anything like that? Because when he was ungodly, God declared him just, Okay, and this is all in justification. Now, sanctification absolutely requires our faith in Jesus Christ, one hundred percent. I mean, that's there's no there there's no debate with this. Like, whenever he was, whenever Cornelius was justified, he was then being sanctified, you know, because he's exercising this faith, and then it could be completed within Christ. And then Cornelius could receive the Holy Spirit, the down payment. So this then, in a way, completes the promise of salvation that we get through Jesus Christ and through his faithfulness. Glorification would be the next step. So if we say that we are justified 
by faith. This has to be a faith that is active and working. Now, do we have the ability or the capacity to have it? Well, we once did, of course, because, you know, Adam was able to exercise that until sin took over. But did original sin cause us to fall to a degree where um, our faith is now inadequate in order to be justified? Well, yes, because no one searches for God. We know that from, you know, Romans 1. All right, so if no one searches for God, if nobody does it, then um, our faith is not good enough. And God makes that uh, that point, you know, pretty clear through all of the Old Testament with the, think of the dietary laws. You don't mix, um, you know, uh, you don't boil a calf in its mother's milk because milk is a symbol of life and the meat is a, a symbol of death. You don't mix light or uh, life and death. Okay. You, um, you don't eat um, things that are mixing of the different spheres. You have you know, air, land, and sea. And, you know, you can eat fish because they are sea creatures, but you can't eat lobsters. Why? Because lobsters crawl on the ground of the seafloor. So they are splitting the difference. They are in between two spheres, in between two worlds. They are mixing the, um, the, the land and the sea together. And God is making the point through these dietary laws that not that these things are unclean, but that they are to could be considered by the Jews to be unclean for them to understand that God does not mix good and evil ever. He does not mix, um, you know, what is clean and what is unclean. Those two things do not mix. So if you have a faith that is tainted, there's nothing that can be done in order to make it eternally perfect. You actually have to have an alien faith and an alien righteousness, which we get from Christ. And this is in our sanctification process. Now, to be justified, nothing can be done for us in order for us to have a faith that is perfect that actually can justify us. So this is why Paul says in um, in Galatians uh, 2.16, that we are justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. It says, and to quote it here, um, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by the faith of Christ and not by works of the law, because the works of the law, no one will be justified. So, it is by Christ's justification, by his faithfulness, okay, that he then merits this justification that is given to the ungodly. This then giving of this righteousness and this sinlessness through his faithfulness to the ungodly is then what puts us in a position that we can be given a faith that is active and this is the beginning of our sanctification and this is why we trust in Christ and we call out for him and that we can say in one sense that we are saved by our faith in Jesus Christ. But when we're looking at the details of salvation, we would say that that is within sanctification and even you could push it into glorification, but most notably in sanctification from what we experience. What you can't say is that we are justified by our faith in Christ. We are justified by the faithfulness of Christ.
Hey, thank you for listening to Theology Pit. You can email me, Samson at SamsonStick.com. I got to make sure that emails are getting through. A couple uh, people have told me that uh, their their emails bounce back. I do have other email addresses, and I might make up one specifically for this. Um, but you can get a hold of me there on Facebook at The Theology Pit. Um, you could send me a, a note, um, too, on um, uh, samsonstick.com. Uh, there's a way to uh, contact me there. Um, I'm going to be talking more about the book and about the writing. And whenever it's done for an editor, I found that, boy, it's expensive to... Um, you know, get books uh, printed and to get, you know, everything done and to be able to make them affordable, you have to do it in such volume uh, that I really am thinking I might do like a Patreon or GoFundMe or something specifically for it so that it can be out at an affordable price, but it will be on this history of the atonement and, you know, why we think this way. Thank you for listening. Share this with your friends and it is definitely time now to close down the pit. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening to the Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. 